Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we hear your Word preached and declared this morning, that your Spirit would be here and active among us. And as your Word is declared, your people would be changed. That hearts would be softened. That sins would be confessed and forgiven. And that healing would come. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you remember from two weeks ago, we began talking about the idea of submission. And that sermon specifically focused in on the context of submission to the state. And we're kind of in the middle here of three weeks on that. We're going to talk about submission, or we talked about submission to the state. We're talking about submission here as servants or slaves to their masters. And then next week we're going to talk about wives uh, submitting to their husbands. So nothing controversial in any of these three weeks whatsoever. Submission is a, a dirty word because we don't like thinking that we have to submit today, especially as Americans. And yet the dirty little truth is, or the dirty little secret, is that we all submit to something. We all submit to someone. And we are told that there are some things that are good to submit to. The only good things to submit to today are the experts, who are kind of wrong at an alarming rate. So I'm not really sure why anyone would want to submit to the experts on just about anything. Or, secondly, you could submit to yourself. Now, if you're going to be honest, you're not a whole lot better than the experts are. You're wrong just as often as they are. Both of those options aren't really that great. The Bible recognizes that as religious beings, all humans will submit to something or someone. Even if you say you do not believe in God, you're going to treat something as if it is your God. We are hardwired to worship and to submit to someone or something. And if we submit to something that isn't God, we call that an idol. Right? We don't bow down to carven rock images or wood images anymore. We think we're really sophisticated. We bow down to ourselves all the time. And so Christianity commands submission to many things. But you'll note, as we noted two weeks ago, that we do this submission always as unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake. So when we are commanded to submit to the government, it's not because we are worshiping the government or we think that the individuals who occupy those seats of authority are inherently better than us or that they inherently have some power or right to power that you don't have. But ultimately, we're submitting to God, not man. And this is good news because it limits the scope of our submission in every sphere of life. You do not submit to to powers that are delegated by God in the same way that you submit to God himself, because man is a sinner. And that places limits upon his right to command submission. 
And so Peter here commands submission immediately above to the state, but he subverts the thinking of his day and ours as he calls us to honor everyone, Caesar, the emperor, and everyone else the same way. He undermined the thinking of his day. He undermines the thinking of our day just by saying we need to submit to something. Peter now, though in today's passage, turns his attention to how Christian slaves should submit to their masters. And then again next week, wives to their husbands. And so you'll note that these new realities that come as being a part of the new covenant community, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people forgiven by God, and so much more that these new realities place real tensions in our relationship in this world until Christ returns. We live in this already new reality in Christ, but we are stuck living in a world that is still, in many ways, influenced and shaped by Satan. How, how do we live? And so Peter establishes that here for us today. And I, I have a little note here that I want you to think on carefully that you need to hear. These commands, both two weeks ago, this week, next week, moving forward, these, com- these commands are what you could call very earthy earthy commands. If you read your Bible without any bias whatsoever, without forcing an external system upon it, you will notice something very clearly. God is incredibly concerned with how you live on the earth. He is incredibly concerned about what goes on in this life, and therefore so should you be. In fact, he's so concerned that he sent his son to take upon himself flesh, physical material, to come down to this earth to save it. We are even taught to pray that your kingdom would come to earth. And that kingdom will come to earth. When we think or speak about teaching and preaching, we uh, often talk about, we outline the text, you got your main points, and then you take those main points and you make application. That's a distinction that, though, is not always helpful because you find in the letters in particular of the New Testament that there were whole texts that were just application to the people. So Peter's writing to a people who are living under an oppressive government. He says, here's the application for these new realities. He's writing to slaves who are living under masters. As we go throughout the text, some of them good, some of them bad. Here's the application. This text is pretty much all application. When he's writing to wives and husbands next week, it's saying, hey, you're a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian wife. This is what it means to be a Christian husband. It's all application. This text is all application for the readers who first received it and to us. The recipients of this letter would include sitting in the congregation that would read it, both slaves and masters. Both slaves and masters would hear these words from the Apostle Peter. Both husbands and wives next week would hear these words as to how they should live. Put it plainly, this life, this world is not meaningless and it is not something that you and I are just waiting to escape. That is sub-biblical thinking. It's very popular in modern Christianity. It's not very popular in the Bible. God cares for his creation He sent his son into it. And this is why the end involves not eradicating the earth, but heaven descending to the earth and Christ dwelling with his people forever in the new heavens and the new earth reunited. 
How you live matters. And so much space in the New Testament is dedicated to that idea. And so today's passage dives into the idea of how someone who is on the one hand free in Christ can live in this age as a slave to a human master. Implicit throughout this entire text, and you're going to see this, is Peter implying rather clearly that this whole thing is unjust. So the title of the message is Unjust Suffering. There's this clear implication that Peter knows that this slavery thing isn't good. It isn't the primary thing that way we want to live. But he's writing to a people who have to live in it. Who have to figure out some way to be a Christian in the midst of it. And as I said last week, the Greco-Roman slavery that Peter was writing into was very, very different than the transatlantic slave trade that marked the United States and other Western countries. For example, Greco-Roman slavery was not based on race. It was not based on man-stealing, that you would steal someone who is free and sell them against their will into slavery. Such a thing in the Old Testament is listed as a capital offense. That is, if you got caught doing it, you would be executed. It's something listed in the book of Revelation that would keep you excluded from the kingdom of God if you partook in man-stealing. So yes, the Bible is wholeheartedly against the type of slavery that marked our nation's history. As mentioned last time, Christianity laid the foundations for the eventual eradication of slavery. And historically, we should note, it was the Christian West that not once but twice got rid of slavery. It got rid of Roman slavery, and then it got rid of the transatlantic slave trade. Which, if you know anything about that slave trade and the history of it, and actually, well, not the transatlantic, but the slave trade in Africa began centuries before the West got involved and lasted centuries longer after the West was done with it, most of it going across the desert to the Middle East in Islam. But we should note that it is unique. what is unique is that slavery, though practiced by every major civilization throughout world history, that is, the West inherited a world that had already existed, what is unique to the Christian West is that they got rid of it. Historically speaking, no one else ever did that. The West did. Why? Because Christianity remade the world into a more righteous place, ridding us of slavery. That is a unique Christian addition to world history. And you're going to see some of the seeds planted here by Peter that would eventually lead to its demise. The section opens with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There's a lot going on in that verse that needs some unpacking. But thinking of the cultural context again, this is a different form of slavery than America had. First, note that the New Testament is written in a time where there was no hope whatsoever for the overturning of the institution of slavery. No hope. No one had ever done it. No one was thinking about, hey, how could we get rid of this unjust institution? Peter and Paul elsewhere write uh, to people who are both slaves and masters in the current system. Emancipation as a, natural, or as a national policy was not considered a realistic goal. So they write primarily as how to live in it. And yet, you find in the pages of the New Testament that we have slaves who are encouraged to get their freedom if they can. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. And Paul instructs a believer to set his slave free in the book of Philemon. 
Moreover, here and elsewhere, we read that masters and slaves are inherently equal. If you really believe that people are inherently equal, slavery cannot long persist. That belief was contrary to the beliefs of Rome. And we even see warnings to masters throughout the New Testament that God will judge them for how they treat their slaves. Roman law didn't care. God does. So while the New Testament does not call for an immediate end to slavery, it sows the ends of it into the ground. And so here we need to understand a little bit of that difference between their type of slavery and ours. So listen carefully. Slaves were made up primarily in that period of time either of conquered people or those who had gotten themselves into some sort of financial ruin. This is why the ESV translated as servant or bond servant. Debt and financial ruin make up the majority of the instructions for slavery in the Old Testament. In this way, somebody had fallen upon hard times and they would sell themselves into slavery. This was an act that they would do unto themselves to pay off their debt and to find a way to actually continue to survive and to pay off that debt. And as they worked off their debt, they would eventually have the chance for freedom. In the Old Testament, these slaves were then given the opportunity, once their debt was paid, to choose whether or not they wanted to fully and permanently commit themselves to the family that they had been working for. Right. So they had exercised an amount of control over this situation. In this way, bond servitude or slavery was an economic arrangement that did benefit both parties. Not talking about American slavery. Ancient slavery was an economic arrangement that did benefit both parties. It served, in essence, as a social safety net in an agrarian culture. That is a farming culture. It was a safety net for the people. The ones in financial hard times get work, housing, food, and protection. The master doesn't impoverish himself then by just giving away his money and getting nothing in return. He says, I'm going to give you this money and then you're going to work for me and earn it back. Now we say that, well then also realizing that that ideal was often distorted and abused and people were treated terribly by it. And so thus, the Old Testament has laws protecting bond servants and slaves that you do not find in other ancient cultures. Now, when you think about how do we bring that to today, the closest thing to that type of bond servitude or slavery is, now don't stone me for saying this, we have some families who this will hit very close to home for, the closest thing to that today is enlisting in the military. That's the closest thing we have to that in our culture today. In exchange for a certain payment, college assistance, training, food, lodging, etc., a person will sign parts of his or her freedom away for an economic benefit for a short period of time. And then after that contract runs up, in which the government pretty much owns you, if you've ever been in the military, they tell you where to go and how long to be there and what job you're going to do, and you get very little say in response to that. But then after your time frame is up, you get the opportunity to re-up, to recommit or not. So there are financial benefits, but in some sense you become owned by some other entity. Now we can talk about whether or not that's righteous for the U.S. military. I don't think it's necessarily a problem. But that is the closest thing we have today to what the Old Testament speaks about with bond servitude. 
In the context of this type of slavery, Peter speaks. He says, submit to your masters. And he says to submit both to the good ones and the evil ones. Why? Because there's no way for them to get their freedom. There was no way for them to escape and to live any sort of life. The Roman Empire went on and on and on. Where were they going to go? There were no free states to flee to. But even here, he identifies, and we should note, that there is such a thing as evil masters. When Peter labels them as evil or wicked masters, he is in essence saying two things. They're oppressive and vile, and they are therefore opposed to God, and God is going to judge them. God very much cares for how these individuals would be treated. So he writes to encourage these individuals to help them in their time of unjust suffering. How can those who are truly free in Christ, who are seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the heavens, be slaves in this age? How can they live spiritually free, but physically in change? That's Peter's focus. And part of the answer is found in speaking truthfully about their context. Some of them have good masters who take good care of them. And if there's a little difference for them than being employed by a company like today. Some of them have evil masters. And God is wholeheartedly against such an arrangement. Sin is not justified simply by the relationship. And this can help you and me today because like those slaves who had evil masters, you and me may suffer in this life and likely will at some point suffer in this life as we are treated unjustly. You can be attacked personally, unfairly. You can be maligned. You can be slandered. You can have an evil boss. You can have evil magistrates. That's governing authorities who will oppress you. In fact, I go so far as to say today, you have many of those who are seeking to oppress you. They don't even hide it in their, del- or in their deliberations in the Senate and Congress floor. They are targeting you as a Christian. Right? We're long past the day where we can pretend like both parties are okay. One of them openly hates you and wants to destroy you. They don't hide it. You just have to listen. They say it plainly. How do you live? I don't know. How should we live? Well, the answer comes in the following verses. The answer is that when we are sinned against, we are called to continue on living righteously. That's not a natural response. We have a tendency, when we are wronged, to seek our own vindication no matter the cost. We have a tendency to respond with personal or to personal attacks with more personal attacks. To slander with slander, to reviling with reviling, to sin with sin. And the Bible again and again commands us to never seek vengeance for ourselves, but to trust the Lord. The same is found here in verses 19 and 20. He says this, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we are called to suffer injustice graciously. You are called to suffer injustice 
by being mindful of God. When we say we're going to suffer graciously, we're saying that party who is oppressing you, who is doing something terrible to you, doesn't have a right to be treated rightly. But you're going to do it anyways. Because this is what God has called us to do. As we are mindful of God and what he has done for us in Christ. Consider how he works this out. He knows, first, that they are suffering injustice, that they are enduring sorrows. And this ethic, this assumption about the underlying injustice of slavery runs throughout the text. He says, all right, you're going to suffer unjustly, which means they're suffering unjustly as slaves. And so we have a not-so-subtle undermining of the institution. Peter is, in essence, saying this. I know many of you are in the sorrows of slavery, that you are suffering under your oppression of this institution, but don't forget God. Don't forget what he has done in Christ. Being wronged does not ever change God's standard of how we should act. Being wronged does not allow us to wrong others in return. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It's like, what good is it if you get sinned against and you sin in return and then you're punished for your sin? What good does that do anyone? The implied answer is, nah, it does no one any good. There's no grace there. There's no redemptive focus there. This is at the heart of the Christian ethic. Sin is not rooted in objects. It's not even primarily rooted in institutions. But sin is primarily found within our human hearts. It's found in us. The moral standard of God is absolute and never changes because of your circumstances. To put it succinctly, as your grandma might have said to you back in the day, two wrongs don't make a right. That's a biblical ethic. Two wrongs never make a right. Just because you slaves are being mistreated, he says, does not make it okay for you to then steal from your master, for you to slander him, for you to do evil things to him. That will not actually serve to undermine the institution. What will is the grace of God in displayed in Christian slaves. The power of the gospel transforming individual hearts and minds is the path forward. The biblical standard is that each person is responsible for his or her own actions. I am responsible for my sin. No one else is. Though I may at times want to say, well, yeah, I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done this first. There may be some truth to that, but I'm still responsible for what I did in response. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said this, if someone slaps you in the cheek, find their weak spot and hit them where it hurts. No, but to turn the other cheek. That is to be our personal ethic. It is how the kingdom of Christ upends the thinking of the world. Of course, there are times in world history for resistance. There are times where it is allowed and even demanded that we defend ourselves or someone else. And that can be both physical defense or verbal defense. But that type of action is never motivated by a seeking of personal vengeance. So fix this in your hearts and in your minds this morning. You will be wronged in this life. You are not above that. Sometime in your life, you are going to be wronged in an absolutely terrible, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching kind of way. 
What are you going to do in response to that? What will you do when someone close to you, someone you have trusted, wrongs you? Because everything within you and everything outside of you in society will encourage you to feel self-righteous in lashing out. He had it coming. This is natural to sinners. But it is the grace of God to not return sin with sin. Whether it's in society, in your marriage, your friendships, you're going to be wronged. Here's the other kicker. You're also going to be the one doing the wrong at some point. And it will be no benefit to anyone to respond to sin with more sin. And yet, to that end, we have in our society today made a profession out of doing that. we got professional victims who respond to sin with sin. The victim mentality of our day screams that victims are free to lash out in any way they want. I mean, it's just a mostly peaceful protest as everything burns behind them. But they've just been wrong for so long. Well, yeah, some of them have been wrong for so long, but that doesn't mean you get to do something else wrong in return. Personally or societally. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the ethics of the kingdom cry out, no matter how badly you've been sinned against, you are not free to do whatever you want in return. God's standard does not change. And we, as fellow sinners, we can sympathize with difficult situations. You all know the rising anger and angst in your gut when you're wronged, or even worse, when someone you loved is wrong and you want to do something. Sometimes there is something for you to do. But it is very easy for us to justify the lashing out. We've all done it. We've all tried to justify our actions. He or she had it coming. I wouldn't have done this if they wouldn't have done that first. But that was so wrong, someone had to say something. And when we do that, we're trying to justify ourselves because our conscience is speaking out saying, that wasn't right. Deep down you know it wasn't right, but you're trying to push it back down. So how do we suffer injustice? In Christ, we do so by continuing on in gracious and righteous living. There are few more powerful testimonies than a Christian who is suffering well in the hope of Christ. You really want to demonstrate the power of the gospel? Get wronged and don't wrong in return. Because it's a supernatural act. It's not common. Peter then directs us to the example of Christ. Listen carefully to what he says in verses 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He starts this off by saying, this reality, you're going to get wronged and you're called to suffer the wrong, that you're called to continue on in righteousness, you've been called to that. What's my calling in life? You've been called to suffer righteously. Why? Because your Savior did it first. 
This is one of those areas where we can act like we are above our Savior, that we're above suffering, that even though he didn't return reviling with reviling, we can. But that's not the way of our Savior. And because of that, our wounds have been healed. When we suffer in this life, when we are wronged, we are to train our hearts and our minds to look to the example of our Savior. For if we are suffering for his sake, if we mimic him, and we are told that we are, con- or we are, told that we are to consider ourselves blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider yourself blessed if you're suffering for Christ's namesake. Why? Because you've been counted worthy of following in the footsteps of your Savior. This is our calling, is a part of what it means to follow Christ. His suffering is explained here. He committed no sin. He was innocent. He didn't speak any lie. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And those are the very footsteps you and I are to follow. There is no room here for any form of self-righteous victimhood. There is no room for that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This does not mean we ignore real victims or anything like that. Please don't hear me saying that. But there is no self-righteousness found in us. But rather, instead of lashing out, we continue on in grace, following the power and the example of Jesus Christ. This goes against everything in our sinful nature, but it shows that there's something more there than your sinful nature. And if you're reading carefully, you'll notice that the plot actually thickens here. It is true uh, that the Jewish leaders, Pilate, and even Satan himself are at the head of the unjust treatment of Christ in his life. But behind all of that, the true cause is laid out here for us. He bore our sins. He bore our sins. He bore my sin. If we use the popular categories here today of oppressed versus oppressor, we were the oppressors and he was the oppressed. It wasn't just that Jesus was being oppressed by somebody else. Your sins were placed upon him. You're the bad guy. He's not. We are the abusers. He is the victim. And he remained silent. He was innocent. And we were guilty. And he did not respond as we would often want to. Christ is the one and only holy, innocent victim this world has ever seen. And he suffered for those who rejected him and hated him. He was attacked by those who he sought the good of. He was vilified by the villains who he suffered for. This is so utterly anti our modern mentality, it should really cause us to marvel at Christ. These are the footsteps you and I are called to walk in. That we suffer wrongs as he did. We follow his example. And we do this because his work has been applied to us and therefore we are changed forever. That we lay down our right for vindication, our right for vengeance, for Christ laid that down to save us. And so we are saved. The gospel has to shape how you suffer, how you respond in the heat of the moment. Whether it's coming from the world, from a stranger, 
from a guy cutting you off in traffic, or from one of your most cherished loved ones. Follow the example of Christ. Because Christ's suffering is not just an example, but Christ's suffering is our hope. Hear again these words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The suffering of Christ is not just an example, as some would want you to believe, but it is the power of God. It is the hope of his people. It is the inbreaking of his kingdom into this world, of which we are a part. And that is what it means to live as an exile in this life. Not that we are waiting for some immaterial existence, but that we belong to a kingdom that is coming to this world. So I see three reasons for hope. Three reasons here given for hope in our suffering. And the first is this. We can have hope in the midst of our suffering because God will judge all sins. He says, Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was able to remain silent and to bear injustice because he knew that his Father would judge all sins. Every sin ever committed by you and to you will be judged. The guilt of that sin will either be placed upon Christ and he will bear it for you or you will bear it for yourself. Now, if you're thinking clearly at all, you know which of the two is the better option. But every wrong will be righted. Every sin will be dealt with. And every tear will be wiped away by the work of Christ. This is the repeated theme of the Bible. Never seek vengeance for yourself. Trust God to judge. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, put it plainly, God is a better judge than you will ever be. Trust Him to vindicate you. Trust Him to deal with others' sin. For He will. Second reason for hope is through His sacrificial death, you and I have been born again. We are now dead to sin and live to righteousness. We call this the idea of the great exchange of Christ's work. That upon his body was placed the sins of us. So Jesus gets our sins. And in return for that, by grace through faith, we get the righteousness of Christ. So if you are in Christ today, all your sins are done. They're dealt with. Even the ones you're going to commit in the future, Christ has paid for them. He got your sin, you get his righteousness. And so, we are called to walk in a newness of life. Though we have been wronged, we do not need to internalize that wrong. We do not take that which has been done to us and make that the core of who we are, our identity. And that's really at the heart of the victim culture. You've been wronged and now you internalize it and you live from that all the time. And if you ever met a person like this, they are no fun to be around. They're on a hairpin trigger all the time. Everything is the end of the world because they've internalized victimhood into their very core of their person. But not you. 
You cannot live that way. For you have been born again by the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ. The third hope given to us here in our suffering is the restoration of the new creation. By Christ's work, our wounds are healed. We are made whole. We were like strange sheep that have now returned to our one true shepherd and overseer. Our hope is that through Christ's work, the old creation is passing away and the new has broken into this age. The hope is that this suffering is but another blow against the kingdom of darkness, that God uses your suffering to advance the kingdom and to overcome this world. Through the work of Christ, this world is being remade, it is being restored, and sin is losing. This is our hope. The power of the gospel and the power of the work of Christ to change people, individuals, to change families, to change nations, and to change the whole world. Why can we suffer injustice? Not because we are trying to escape the world, but because the world is being retaken by Christ through his church. The gospel is still saving people today. It's still transforming you and me. The church every day, through its many local branches, sees families brought back from the brink and healed. Fathers turn to sons and mothers turned to their daughters. They see families whose wounds are healed through the gospel. We see people who are far away from God, who no one thought would ever be saved, and the Spirit falls upon them, and God heals them by the gospel. People are changed from the inside out. We have seen rebellious nations throughout world history, whether it was Rome or Britain or any other nation that was in the full throes of paganism that was transformed by Christ. And hear me, we will see it again. As Rome killed the martyrs and threw them to the lions, they were only serving to water the soil of their own destruction and their own defeat. For the saints suffered in such a way as they followed Christ. By the blood, or by the faithfulness of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb, the church continues to overcome and conquer. Why can we suffer great evils? How can Peter instruct slaves to act righteously even though they are being oppressed? Because Christ's kingdom is going to win and is in the process of winning. Because the gospel has power to change everything from the most sinful individual to families to churches, institutions, and even nations are healed. They don't become perfect overnight, but they do become faithful. We suffer injustice because we believe and know the power of the gospel to save and to renew because it has happened to us first. So no matter where we find ourselves, please know this. It's never too late. It's never too far gone. By his wounds, we are healed. So we suffer and we rejoice, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith the crucified, whipped, and spit-upon Savior who rose again in victory. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us an example in Christ to follow in our suffering. 
but that also you have given us more than that. You have given us a foundation of hope. That in Christ, this world is being turned upside down. This world is being made new by the power of his blood. Lord, we pray as you have commanded us that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. And that when you come, you would find us and many other churches busy doing your work, suffering and declaring the glories of the gospel. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.